So, no time for a cutesy intro today. Uh, we've got to run a marathon while sprinting. Okay? So today's question is this. What is the Trinity and is it biblical? What is the Trinity and is it biblical? The easy answer is yes it is. It's biblical. And here's what we'll use as our working definition today. The basic definition of what the Trinity um, is. Don't end a sentence with a preposition. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God in essence, in substance. God exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each one of those three persons, we'll define persons a little bit here for you, each one of those three persons is fully God, and there is one God in essence. Now, a few points of background will help us uh, before we get into the text. Uh, a few points of information and background will help us get it sort of started on the right direction. First is this. The word trinity is just a shortened form of two words, tri-unity. It just means three in one-ness. Um, three in one-ness. <laughs> and while the word is not in the Bible, the concept very clearly is, and by the way, there are lots of words that don't show up in the Bible that we use to describe truthful concepts that are contained in the Bible. Um, words like monotheism, atheism, incarnation, inerrancy, immersion, omnipresence, omniscience, and in many translations, most of them in fact, the word communion as an expression of the Lord's Supper, not in there. The mere absence of a particular word uh, is not an actual argument against it being a useful or a truthful word. So, that's the first thing to, to be aware of. Second is this. When we say that God exists eternally as three persons, we are not saying three human beings. Personhood is not the same as being human. Most traditionally defined, the concept of personhood uh, is something closer to what we think of when we think of the word personality, uh, and it does not include the idea of having uh, a body, of being corporeal, as the nerds say. Um, it's the kinds of things that make up the soul, like mind and will and emotions and all those sorts of things. So here's the definition of personhood uh, that we're going with today. A person, I'll, I'll say this slowly and twice, a person is a living being with capacity for freedom, consciousness, and relationship. There are some other good ways to say that, but that's what we're going to use for us today. Personhood uh, means a living being with capacity for freedom, consciousness, and relationship. You need to keep that definition in mind because when we say that God is three persons, we mean three distinct living beings who have the capacity for freedom, consciousness, and relationship. It has nothing to do with being human, per se. It has nothing to do with gender. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with having a body. And for the record, we're not just making up this definition. Uh, this is a classic, uh, a well-tested view of this concept of personhood. Uh, third thing we need to bear in mind before we jump into the scriptures. <laughs> Duh. The Trinity is not easy to understand. Uh, we are limited humanity today, doing our best to describe an unlimited God, using the words that he's given to us in his revealed word. So don't be surprised that the Trinity is hard to understand. 
Now, as soon as you talk about this concept of the Trinity, uh, three persons, one essence, uh, one being, many will quickly object. Listen, wait, you're saying God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully, entirely God, and yet there is one God in essence? Ridiculous. Balderdash. As my mom used to say, fiddlesticks. I'm not sure what that means. But the Trinity is difficult to understand, to comprehend, but that doesn't mean it's untrue, it doesn't mean it's unbiblical, and it doesn't mean it's illogical. The Trinity may go beyond reason, but that does not mean it is against reason. That's good, and you should write that down. I didn't come up with it, someone else did. The Trinity may go beyond reason, but that does not mean it is against reason. So, let's begin to answer today's question, and here's what we'll find in our study of Scripture as we talk about the Old and the New Testaments. The doctrine of the Trinity is progressively revealed, meaning not all at one time. It's uh, changing a little bit from the Old through to the New Testament. It's progressively revealed in Scripture, first, partially, in the Old Testament. The Trinity, God as three in one, is only implied in the Old Testament, which if you think about it, makes sense. I mean, Jesus is not revealed until the New Testament, so why would we respect, expect a full revelation of the Trinity in the Old Testament? It's like the old saying about the relationship between the Old and New Testaments. There's this saying um, that says, the new is in the old concealed, the new is in the old concealed, but in the new, the old is revealed. I didn't make that one up either. Pretty sure it was Augustine. And it's not Augustine, it's Augustine. A little bit of British helps make it sound official too. So let's look at the partial revelation of the Trinity in the Old Testament. So buckle up, time to start sprinting for the next uh, 20-something miles. So according to Genesis 1, the very first chapter in the Bible, Genesis 1:26, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It used to be often suggested that these plurals here, let us make man in our image after our likeness, that those were what we call plurals of majesty. That's like when a king or a queen uh, would speak on behalf of the, the whole entire kingdom and say like, we are not amused or, you know, we are pleased to grant you this request. Um, but in the Old Testament Hebrew, they didn't have that plural of majesty. It has often also been suggested that maybe God is speaking to angels, other spiritual beings here. Uh, But not only did angels not participate in the creation of humanity, but mankind was not created in the image and likeness of angels, so that can't be right. The best explanation we have of Genesis 1.26 and the use of those plurals is that right in the very first chapter of Genesis, there's an indication of what we call a plurality of personhood, a plurality of persons in God himself. And while we're not told how many of those persons, uh, and in here in Genesis 1, we don't have a complete uh, doctrine of the Trinity, it is clearly implied here that more than one person In our definition of personhood, more than one person is involved. We actually see this in a number of places. In Genesis 3.22, he says, they say, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Genesis 11.7, 
Come, let us go down and there confuse their language. And Isaiah 6, 8, he says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah 6, 8 is an example of God speaking to himself, uh, using both singulars and plurals, sometimes in the same sentence, sometimes over an entire passage, sometimes in the book of Isaiah, in multiple passages throughout the entire book. There's a clear implication of a plurality of persons, at least in some basic terms. There are also passages in the Old Testament where one person is called God, or Lord, and that one person is distinguished from another person who is also said to be God. These aren't examples of polytheism, don't worry. These are examples of the Trinity at work speaking to itself in the Bible. This is actually quite common. God speaks to himself uh, as he acts. In Psalm 45, 6-7, which is a cool passage, it says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Verse 7, it says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, this is a bit complicated, but try to track with me. I'll try to slow down a smidge. (laughs) Uh, Not only does it call the king in verse 6, God, your throne, O God, but he says his throne will last forever and ever, which describes something beyond normal earthly kingdoms, right? And then in verse 7, look at this. It says, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions, which implies that, that God is speaking to God, the Father to the Son, the Father to the Son whose throne will last forever and ever, and the Son who has been anointed with the oil of gladness from God the Father beyond his own companions. One well-known Testament scholar says this, it's an example of the Old Testament language, which is sort of a limited, like, right, like human language is limited in its scope to communicate unlimited, amazing, holy, beyond us things. It's an example of the Old Testament language bursting its banks to demand more than human fulfillment. We also see this later in Psalm 110, verse 1. In Psalm 110, verse 1, David himself says, The Lord, meaning God the Father, The Lord God the Father says to my Lord God the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We know that this is the case because in Matthew 22, Jesus himself He rightly understands that right here in Psalm 110, David is saying, God the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand. And even though David doesn't know anything about Jesus uh, by name yet, he does understand that there's some sort of relationship here between the Father and the Son that is being made known here in Psalm 110. Apparently David himself was aware of a plurality of persons within the one God. Isaiah 63.10 says it this way. says, God's people rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. This implies here two things. Number one, not just the Father and the Son, but the Holy Spirit is distinct from God Himself. It says, it is His Holy Spirit, meaning God the Father's Holy Spirit. That is a distinction of persons there. Second thing this implies is that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. 
That suggests, as we talked about personhood earlier, uh, the capacity for relationship that is characteristic of a distinct person. Isaiah 61.1 also distinguishes between the person of the Holy Spirit from God the Father. Similar evidence is found in Malachi 3, Hosea 1, Isaiah 48, 63, uh, Proverbs 30, three places in Zechariah 2. And not only do those places imply two persons of the Trinity at the least, a few of those imply full Trinitarian places uh, where there are three persons of the Trinity involved there, even in the Old Testament. There are at least a good dozen places I know of that I found that speak of this plurality within the Godhead. And there are more, but who's got time to read all the books that one wants to read? Furthermore, several Old Testament passages about what's called the angel of the Lord suggest not only some plurality of persons within the Godhead, but that Christ has made some Old Testament appearances as what's called a messenger of God. We know this because the word that's translated angel usually just simply means messenger, meaning a created spiritual being, a created being. But at some points in the Old Testament, this messenger, who is distinct from the Father and the Spirit, is literally called God or the Lord, which implies eternality, foreverness, as distinct from being a created being. This happens in a number of places. Genesis 16, Exodus 3, Exodus 23, Numbers 22, Judges 2, Judges 6. We're not just making this stuff up. It's throughout the Old Testament. So, if the doctrine of the the Trinity is progressively revealed in the Old Testament, meaning it's partially revealed in the Old Testament, then when we get to Jesus, we see this concept of God being three in one much more completely revealed. Uh, very explicitly so, which makes sense when you think about it, right? Since the New Testament tells the story of the coming of the Son of God to the earth, it makes sense that we would see more explicit teaching about the three-in-one, the Trinitarian nature of God himself. So let me give you a few representative examples here, starting with uh, one of the best. Um, This is one you're going to want to remember uh, in conversations with people. Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. This is when Jesus was baptized. And it says this. The heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God. Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. At one moment, we have all three persons of the Trinity. Notice this. Performing three distinct activities. The Father speaks from heaven. The Son is being baptized and spoken to from heaven. And the Holy Spirit descends to rest upon and empower Jesus for ministry. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, in Matthew 28, another great example, an explicit example of the Trinity. He tells the disciples, this is part of the Great Commission, we call it, Matthew 28, 19. Jesus tells the disciples that they need to go, that they should go and make disciples of all nations. And that says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit. The use of the Father and the Son here show not only distinctness of personhood, same with the, the, the Holy Spirit, but also closeness of relationship, Father, Son, family relationship there. Also notice that the Holy Spirit is put on the same level as the other two persons of the Trinity, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Final piece of evidence here to look at in this section. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6 to is a representative example. There are others of this. This is a representative example of a Trinitarian expression in the New Testament, just like we've seen, that uses all three uh, names and titles. It says this, starting at verse 4, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And that's obviously the Holy Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And that's Jesus. And there are varieties of working, but it's the same God. That's God the Father, who inspires them all in every one. Just like we've seen in the other examples we've looked at, they can't all be operating in distinct ways at the same time if they're not internally existent and different personal beings. That's obviously the case here. We see the same Trinitarian uh, formula and expressions in 2 Corinthians 13, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 1, and Jude 20 and 21, just to name a few others. So, let's summarize uh, some of the biblical teaching that we've encountered so far with three statements that tie in with our initial definition of the Trinity. And these are the statements that we're going to use today to define this doctrine that summarize the biblical teaching. Number one, God is three persons. God is three persons. Remember the personhood definition we gave earlier. Number two, each person is fully God. And thirdly, there is one God in essence, in fundamental, essential substance, without which he would not be God whether it's Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. So let's prove each of these a little bit more from Scripture. God is three persons. The fact that God is three persons means that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each distinct and that they can have relationship with one another and others around them. Remember, personhood is not equivalent to being human and having a body necessarily. Personhood is the capacity for freedom, consciousness, and relationship. We see this distinction of persons not only in the Old Testament passages that we've already looked at, but in a bunch of additional New Testament passages. John 1, 1 to 2 tells us this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The fact that the Word here, who is shown to be Christ later on in this passage, the fact that the Word here was with God and not just was God shows some distinction from the Father. And yet, if you want to look into it a little bit, same essential stuff. But we're not there right now. So, the Word was with God and was God shows distinction personally from the Father. John 17, 24, another good example of this. Hebrews 7, 25. 1 John 2, 1, also good examples of this. So, not only are the Father and the Son distinct from each other, but both of the Father and Son are shown to be distinct from the Holy Spirit in several verses. Here's one quick example of many. Jesus says this, John 14, 26. And actually you'll see all three of them show up here. But the Helper, Jesus speaking, the Helper, referring to the Holy Spirit, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. The Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said 
to you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all distinct from one another here in John 14, 26, as they are in the passages we've already cited and talked about where the Trinitarian expressions uh, show up. One additional point quickly on this idea that God is three persons. It's worth mentioning. Uh, Some have suggested uh, that the Holy Spirit is not a distinct person of the Trinity, but just sort of an impersonal force or a power of God the Father. But the evidence from the Scriptures show that the Holy Spirit is much more than just some sort of impersonal force or energy or power. In Matthew 28, 1 Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 13, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 1, the Holy Spirit is given equal status and position with both the Father and the Son. These are places where the Holy Spirit, which is a neuter noun, not male, not female, uh, the Holy Spirit receives a masculine pronoun, which is unexpected according to the traditional rules of Greek grammar. Uh, There are places like that where the Holy Spirit is is given by the writers of the Scriptures a personal name or a title, like counselor, helper, comforter. There are numerous activities that the New Testament writers ascribe to the Holy Spirit that are personal, teaching, bearing witness, interceding or praying on behalf of others. Things like searching the depths of God, another distinct person, knowing the thoughts of God, distributing some gifts to some and other gifts to others, forbidding or not allowing certain activities, speaking many times in the Old and in the New Testaments, uh, evaluating and approving a wise course of action, and being grieved by the sin of those who are believers. Impersonal forces and energy don't care (laughs) if you sin. Uh, The Holy Spirit is grieved. So a plain reading of the text of the Old and the New Testaments uh, very clearly presents us with three distinct persons within the Trinity who have freedom, consciousness, and relationship with one another and relationship with us. Second assertion that summarizes the biblical teaching today is this. Each person is fully God. Each person is entirely fully God. The overwhelming testimony of the Scriptures is that every single one of the three persons of the Trinity is fully God. First, God the Father, clearly God. (laughs) Duh. Uh, This is clear from the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God, meaning God the Father, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a self-evident thing that God the Father is truly and, and clearly entirely fully God. This is clearly something that's, that's written all over uh, the Scriptures. God the Father is clearly communicated as sovereign Lord over all creation in hundreds and hundreds of places. So we're going to assume that first one. Second, the Son is fully God. We're going to expand on this a little bit in a, in a later sermon in this series to answer the question about whether Jesus... Uh, really claimed to be God. Uh, But let me briefly note several explicit passages as representative examples of this idea that the second person of the Trinity, uh, that that God the Son, is fully God. John 1, 1 through 4, very clearly affirms the fullness of the deity, the godness of Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Look at this. All things were made through him, still referring to, to Jesus. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. Here Christ is referred to as the Word. And John says both that he was God and with God. The Apostle John is intentionally here in the opening words of John 1, echoing the opening words of Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, to remind us of something that was true before the world was even made, namely that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was always fully God. It's not just John 1 that says that, it's a bunch of different places. It's John 1, it's Colossians 1 and 2, it's Hebrews 1. Later on in that same passage in John 1, in uh, verse 18, the full deity of Christ is explained explicitly because it says, He, meaning Jesus the Son, has made Him, meaning God the Father, known. Christ makes God known. John 20:28 20, is a, a, a real cool place. Uh, in the context of John 20:28, 20, it's a strong proof for Jesus as God. You may remember that the doubting Thomas um, reported that Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead and he said he was not going to believe unless he could see and touch Jesus himself, his, his uh, wrists and his side. So then Jesus appeared and he says to Thomas, dude, check it out, um, which is the WSV, the Wakefield Standard Version, available in the hub for 19.99. Proceeds go to pay off my student loans. In response to Jesus saying, dude, check this out, John reports in John 20, 28, look at this, Thomas answered him, meaning Jesus, my Lord and my God. Immediately after that, Jesus says, yep, you're right, right on, bro, you finally got it. Yes. In Hebrews 1, Christ is called the exact representation, the exact duplicate of the nature and the being of God. Meaning whatever attributes or power or holiness God the Father has, the Son also has. In that same chapter in Hebrews 1.10, the author of Hebrews even ascribes the creation of the heavens and the earth to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Son, when he says, uh, when the writer says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands, referring to Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 9, In Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Titus 2.13 refers to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1.1 1, speaks of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Many other passages could be cited. So second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son, is also fully God. Third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, also fully God. We've already shown many verses uh, that show God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit put on equal levels that classify the Holy Spirit as attaining to the same status as divine along with the Father and Son. And here are just a couple other examples that show that the Holy Spirit is also fully God. Acts 5, 3, and 4. Acts 5, 3, and 4. Peter asks Ananias, because Ananias is in trouble, why has Satan filled your heart to lie, look at this, to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. According to this verse, to lie to the Holy Spirit is the same as lying to God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, do you not know that you are God's temple? You're the place where God lives and that God's Spirit dwells in you. God can't live in you 
if God's Spirit's not in you. Paul couldn't say this if the Spirit was not fully God. Psalm 139, 7-8 teaches that the Spirit is omnipresent everywhere. Present, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11, teach us that the Spirit is omniscient, all-knowing. In John 3, 5 to 7, Jesus' own words teach that the second person of the, I'm sorry, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit alone brings new spiritual life. The overwhelming witness of both the Old and the New Testaments is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all three fully God. So, up to this point, we've made biblical arguments for the first two of three statements that summarize the biblical teaching. Namely, number one, God is three persons. Number two, each person is fully God. And if the Bible only taught those first two uh, assertions we've made, we would have no logical problem at all in fitting them together because we would simply say that logically there are three gods. The the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all fully God and we would have three equally divine beings, which is a form of polytheism. We'd probably call it something like tritheism, uh, belief in three gods. But (laughs) Scripture is abundantly clear that there is only one God in essence. The three different persons of the Trinity are not only one in purpose and in agreement on what they think, but they are one in essence, in substance, in their essential nature. In other words, the clear teaching of Scripture is that God is only one being. There are not three gods, there is only one God. This is the case in hundreds and hundreds of passages throughout the Scriptures. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5 is one of the most famous. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is... One, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. When Moses sings in Exodus 15, 11, he says, Who is like you, Lord, among the small g gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The answer is obviously no one. When God himself speaks in hundreds of places, he repeatedly makes it clear that he is the one and only true God In the universe, he says, Isaiah 4, 5 through 6, representative of hundreds of places in just the Old Testament, he says, I am, this is him speaking about himself, I am the Lord God. There is no other. He shares that title with no one except the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The New Testament also very explicitly affirms that there is one God. Romans 3, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Timothy 2, James 2. The overwhelming witness of both the Old and the New Testament points to three persons, every one of whom is fully divine, and yet God exists as one being in essence in supernatural, holy, infinite, essential stuff. And if these three persons are fully divine and yet one in essence, then we'll end today with this. Then God eternally and necessarily exists as what we've called today the Trinity. He eternally and necessarily exists as the Trinity. Think about this. Just from a few of the verses, um, the passages we've cited today, 
When the universe was created out of nothing before time and before space and before matter, think of what the Trinity did. God the Father spoke the powerfully creative words. God the Son was the divine agent who carried out these words. And God the Holy Spirit was actively moving over the face of the waters. If just what we just said is true, then God eternally and necessarily exists as the Trinity taught in the Bible. Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each person fully God, and there is one God in essence. No other description of the God of the universe is worthy of our worship. No other being can handle holiness and righteousness. No other being can judge from the purity of heart that the one and true God of the universe does. This is who we worship, friends. Let's pray. Father, when we think about who You are, as Your Scripture reveals You to be to us, we are overwhelmed at the idea, Lord, that without Your initiative to make Yourself known to us, we would have no chance of a forever relationship with You. Father, we are humbled at the thought of the reality of the depth of Your perfection and Your holiness and Your character. That You have eternally existed before all space, time, and matter. And yet, You have given Yourself to us through the power of Your Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit to make us new. So, Father, we love You for this amazing truth. And we give You praise and glory. And we ask, Lord, that our minds and our hearts would be um, continually formed after your image as we give ourselves more fully to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.